Welcome to Ambition to Impact, a climate action podcast powered by Climate Impact Partners. In today's episode, Liam Mulverhill, our HR Director, talks to Chris Gaither, an executive coach helping sustainability leaders find sustainability within their jobs, knowing all too well what can happen when this is missing. Chris spent nearly two decades counselling senior executives, overseeing global storytelling initiatives and building teams at Apple, Google and the LA Times. He didn't take a career break for almost 20 years, resulting in burnout. And in late 2017, he quit the corporate sustainability job he loved at Apple. In what he calls his mid-career reboot, Chris reconnected with all the things that mattered to him. And, working with an executive coach, he discovered his purpose. To help others discover and unleash the best version of themselves too. This saw Chris co-found Regenerous, an organisation working with senior sustainability leaders and their teams to help make work easier and happier. So, if any of this sounds familiar, then today's episode is the one for you. As we talk to Chris about how, in the fight to stop the planet from burning, Sustainability professionals can avoid burning out and build resilience. Let's delve into his story from ambition to impact. Hi, Chris. Welcome to Ambition to Impact. We are absolutely delighted that you can join us this afternoon. Really excited by the opportunity today to talk about resilience, talk about burnout, talk about one of the most um, important issues facing HR, facing our industry, facing the human race as well. So absolute pleasure to host you. Um, Before we start, should I say, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Thank you, Liam. Climate Impact Partners is doing such important work and I'm really delighted to be with you again. Fantastic. Fantastic. So um, I've been fortunate enough to hear a little bit about your story, but it would be great if you could um, talk us through how you've ended up in the executive coaching space, how you've ended up specializing in this important area and, and especially with the sustainability focus. Yeah, thank you for um, for asking. You know, some people begin doing environmental work because they feel a deep connection with the planet and they craft their whole, their whole career around that. I did the opposite. I just stumbled into climate work, into environment and social impact work. And I couldn't be more thankful that I did. For me, it happened in 2013. So a little bit over a decade ago now, I was working at Google on uh, the communications team and I was leading Google's global privacy and security communications. So I was spending a lot of time talking about um, this very business uh, critical topic for Google. And Apple uh, approached me and said, we are creating a position. They were bringing it together for the first time under one director level position, all of their corporate social responsibility communications. So part of that was their supply chain responsibility work. And a big part of that was their environmental work. And by the way, we've just hired this woman named Lisa Jackson, who was President Obama's EPA administrator. And we want to start talking much more about the work we're doing and even more importantly, building on our very quietly uh, achieved progress. 
and um, really create a world-class environmental program. And I said, I don't know anything about that, but I love learning. Before I worked at Google, I was a journalist for a dozen years. And so I love diving into topics and learning things. And I ended up saying yes to that role. And it has since become my life's work. You know, I think of myself in many ways as a um, as a climate person first, you know, that my primary job is to support people like you and your colleagues who are doing this really essential planetary healing work. And the way that I happen to do that in many cases is through executive coaching, uh, through, uh, through writing, through team coaching and workshop facilitation and public speaking, but it's all really, uh, it has the same intention behind it, which is to help the people like you who are doing this extremely challenging work do it with more ease, with more grace, with more effectiveness, because it's really easy to get uh, weighed down by the the heaviness of um, of the work. And so we all need all the support that we can get. Fantastic. Your breadth of experience is awesome. Really super inspiring to think about the companies and work that you've touched. But you've also had some personal experience of, of burnout yourself and the actual topic. Would you be okay to elaborate on on some of that because this work has touched you personally. Yeah, I'd be happy to. You know, sometimes we go through really dark periods in our in our lives and we feel like we're never going to come out of them. And then when we do, we realize they're actually the stories that shape who we are. And for me, burning out of the work that I was doing became one of those stories. So as I mentioned, I started working at Apple in 2013. And at first I was working on the communications team. And then after about a year and a half, Lisa brought me to work for her directly. And I was her director of strategy and engagement. And I took on a big portfolio uh, of work for her. And every morning I would wake up and I would say, my primary job today is to make Lisa Jackson successful. If I can do that, then our team will be better, Apple will be better, the world will be better, because she's such a big-hearted leader and so inspirational. So I really threw everything I had into making her um, as successful as she could be. And the work that I did for her uh, was, um, it was really broad. You know, I, I oversaw environmental reporting, I oversaw all of our stakeholder engagement, working with business group, working with activist groups. And I still remember meeting with Greenpeace um, early on. And one of the leaders of Greenpeace said, you know, uh, sometimes we will dance with you and sometimes we will dance on you. And uh, our job was to try to have them dance um, with us as much as they danced on us. Um, and, uh, you know, I really, uh, I, I embraced the work really fully and ended up falling in love with the mission of it. I loved the people so much that I worked with, and I thought I was going to keep doing that work for a really long time. And for me, the turning point ended up being Earth Day of uh, 2017. So Earth Day is April 22nd. And I can remember so clearly that we had rolled out a, a giant campaign that I had overseen. Um, we turned all of the the uh, the Apple uh, logo leafs uh, green at the retail stores around the world. We announced um, a, a giant um, circular economy uh, goal for the company that we didn't know how we were going to accomplish. We 
talked about our progress around 100% renewable energy. We introduced a new iPhone recycling robot, um, coincidentally named Liam. Oh. And yeah, and we um, we were so proud. And we we held a big event on campus for all of the Apple employees to both celebrate the moment and also inspire people to to work. And Tim Cook stood up in front of everybody and said, this is the work that we must do for future generations. We don't know how we're going to pull this off, but we have to uh, leverage all of our ingenuity and our innovation that Apple is known for in service of this work. And everybody was celebrating and it was a wonderful moment. The problem for me was that I just was uh, as depleted as I could possibly imagine. I wanted to be happy. You know, people were high-fiving me and hugging and we were drinking beer and listening to uh, to music and I just had nothing left. I just wanted to crawl into bed. And I had felt like that before. And every year uh, around Earth Day, I had bounced back. But this particular Earth Day of 2017, I didn't. And it just kept getting worse and worse, you know, to the point where my body had terrible pains uh, going through it. Um, I had nerve problems in my feet and my hands. My back kept going out. And I had real depression um, that took me over. And I felt like I was in a deep cave. And I had to often shield my my eyes from my coworkers because I had tears coming into my eyes because I just didn't know how I was going to get through the day. And so I did the thing that was um, really frightening to me that I just knew I had to do, which is I left my dream job. I, I went into Lisa's office and I told her that I was going to be leaving and I didn't know what I was going to do next. And I ended up taking some time away. It was a, an incredible privilege that I had um, that I was able to take some time away from work. And I just did things that brought me back to life. And I just followed my instincts. I didn't really have a playbook for it. Um, but I read poetry. Um, you know, I uh, took creative writing classes. I, I walked my son to school. I volunteered at my local food bank. Um, I, uh, I began meditating and, um, and it just became a wonderful period of, uh, of coming back alive. And once I felt like I actually had some energy left to give, I called my former executive coach from Apple and said, Mary, I feel ready to, uh, to, to serve again. Uh, I have energy again, but I have no idea what I want to do with myself. And we ended up beginning a body of work that resulted in uh, the work that I'm that I'm doing today. And of course, there were twists and turns along the way. Um, but it took me, you know, it took me really burning out in service of planetary healing and really losing my own health in service of planetary healing to realize how important it is that we we care for ourselves as we're doing this work. Otherwise, we really don't have the best of ourselves available and we need the best of ourselves individually, as teams, as organizations, as societies, as humanity, in order to be able to address the enormity of the crises we're facing. So I just really want to congratulate and thank you for your authenticity in uh, regaling what is such a, a personal story about burnout. And I feel that while many of the listeners won't be able to fully resonate with the extremity of what you experienced I do know firsthand of some of the sort of symptoms and conditions that existed for you to uh, end up burnout and I'm sure people will 
will relate to that and take strength from the way that you've bounced back and used it as a tool to inspire and, and help others. What's quite intriguing about the next bit of your journey, Chris, is the focus on sustainability. And you say that first you are someone who um, wants to help with climate change and environmentalist and, and an activist in that space. But the burnout and resilience work is translatable across any industry. What was the motivating factor behind working specifically with sustainability professionals? And I suppose a, a two-parter on that. What are some of the specific challenges that come working with our industry? Yeah, there, there are a few reasons why I work with sustainability leaders. The first one is that they tend to be lovely people who I really enjoy spending time with. They are big hearted. They are really connected to nature. They tend to be very open and curious people, and they want to make a difference in the world. So selfishly, I just like hanging out with them. The second reason is that it has become... Uh, a, a real extension of my own sense of meaning and purpose and mission in the world to support those leaders. If I um, if I use my time at Apple as an example, I did not know how to and do not know how to strike solar contracts, uh, power purchase agreements. I do not know how to re-engineer the manufacturing pro uh, process to reduce the carbon emissions of the aluminum casing on the MacBook. Uh, I don't know how to do any of these things. What I do know how to do is help the people who are doing that work be more effective in it. And that's the kind of impact that I want to make in the world. So aligning my personal why with the why of my clients makes me feel much better and it invites the best forward in me. And the third reason why I really love working with sustainability leaders is that they are by nature systems thinkers. Mm. You know, they pay attention to uh, watersheds and coral reefs and forests and, and other dynamic, complex living systems. So there's a bit of a judo move that we are mm. able to do with our company to work with them where we help them remember that they have all the answers that they need already within them because they, as an individual, are dynamic, complex living systems. Their team is a dynamic, complex living system. And since they're already experts in making uh, intelligent interventions into a system in order to change that system for the better and improve its health, they realize that they can do the same for themselves and for their teams by leveraging that expertise that they already have. And it's a really beautiful moment to watch them discover over and over again that the answers they're looking for are not outside, they're inside. You know, um, the um, uh, the environmentalist and, and author Paul Hawken, uh, he's the author of one of my favorite books, um, Regeneration. And, you know, he likes to say that the, the, the climate crisis is not a technology problem, it's a human problem. And that really resonates with me. You know, this is really about looking at the world in a different way and changing ourselves from the inside as individuals, as organizations, as societies to, um, you know, to, to, to create 
in a very different way than we have been uh, that has gotten us into this mess in the first place. Just um, something you said which really resonated there about the, the, the judo moves. I think taking the topic, which is complicated and, and kind of dark and, and personal and still leaving people with practical tools that tap into their personal preferences and ways of thinking is incredibly powerful, I think. Could you touch on a couple of those, I, I would be simplifying too much to call them hacks, but um, touch on a couple of those tools that, that you try to impart on people to bring the um, possibilities to life. Sure. Um, I, I am <clears throat> I'm a big believer in the power of metaphor and uh, in, in storytelling. So I'll probably lean into a few metaphors rather than tell people what to do. Um, one metaphor that I really love is the idea of doing energy audits. The industry has become excellent at analyzing the efficiency of buildings. And why do we somehow think that buildings are more worthy of our attention than we are, than our spirits are? You know, we can do energy audits on ourselves to find out where are we leaking energy? Where are we gaining energy? And how do we design our, our lives to maximize the um, the creation of energy and minimize the, the draining of energy? And one little tip that I, uh, I did not invent, but I like to, to work with my clients on, and I've done myself, is to do an energy audit of uh, of your your diary, uh, your your calendar for the week, and what that might look like is that every time you have a meeting, every time you do a task, um, every time you have a conversation with somebody, you make a little mark next to it. You can do an arrow up, which signifies uh, my energy increased by doing this, or you can have uh, a little uh, you know equals sign, which signifies my energy was about the same or a down arrow that says, uh, I drained my energy from this task. And you can pay attention to the trends and start to notice what are the things that are filling me with energy and what are the things that are draining me with energy. And then just start to shift the ratios a bit. You know, Even uh, doing five or 10% uh, more of your activities focused on energy creation can make a really big difference in how you look at the world. So that's one idea. Another one that I'll share, and uh, it's a bit more poetic than, than that, is one that I learned from working with an organization called uh, X. It used to be called Google X, and it's Alphabet's Innovation Lab. It's where self-driving cars were invented, and they're working on really remarkable projects, including uh, many climate-related pro projects. And what I learned from them is uh, they have a... Um, a, a way of thinking about innovation. And one of the examples that they use really draws on the wisdom of nature. You know, how can we look at nature to remember ways of being that will serve us really well? And uh, an example that they use is uh, an insect called a tiger beetle. And a tiger beetle is one of the fastest animals around. It is able to run for its size 
um, you know, faster than just about anything else. It's really remarkable. In fact, it runs so fast that its processing capabilities in its brain can't keep up with its limbs. So what it does is it decides intentionally where it's going to go, and then it runs its little heart out. And while it's running, its, um, its ability to take in new information essentially shuts down and it arrives at its destination. And it has to pause at that destination and look around and take stock and say, where am I now? What's here? What information do I need to take in? And now I'll choose again where I want to go from here. And at X, they talk about consciously creating tiger beetle moments because we all feel like the tiger beetle often, don't we? That we're running so fast in our lives, we're running through our work so quickly that it can be easy to forget to pause and take stock of where we are and make a conscious choice about where to run next. So that's one thing that your your listeners may uh, may bring into their lives and start to play with a bit is incorporating some of these tiger beetle moments into into their lives. For those leading teams, organizations who have <clears throat> direct reports, I think the emphasis is clearly to focus on your own well-being and and the tools that you need and audits, etc. But how do you create an environment where tiger beetle moments are the norm or you start to build culture where some of these behaviors and new habits and new muscles can come to life because there is a, an individual responsibility, but then also a sort of an environment that we can create. So how do leaders bring that to life? I'm so glad you asked that question, Liam, because it, it points at something really important. When I, when I became a coach after I left Apple, I started talking more frequently about the irony of my situation and of, and of others, which is that I was spent all day talking about corporate sustainability and planetary sustainability, and I completely forgot to cultivate my own human sustainability. And the more that I talked about it, the more I heard from people who are working in the field who said, I thought it was just me. I thought I was the only one who was dealing with this. And they felt really isolated. They felt um, afraid. They felt alone. And they felt a tremendous sense of responsibility to fix it on their own. And they were suffering really quietly. Mm. And what I've come to understand is that burnout is not an individual failing. You know, viewing it as an individual failing is a bit like uh, when there's an oil spill, going and finding one of the pelicans that's covered in oil and that's suffering there on the beach and saying, hey, why don't you try some meditation? Hey, why don't you do things that, um, that will make you feel better because it's your responsibility to take care of yourself? No, it's a systems problem. And leaders uh, are creators uh, and, and um, uh, manipulators in a positive way of systems, right? Creating the conditions for thriving, creating the conditions for resilience is, uh, is shared responsibility. Mm. And as a leader of a team, there's very much the human element of it, right? I don't want my people to be to be suffering. I don't want them to be getting sick. I don't want them to be 
um, struggling with mental health challenges because I care for them as individuals. There's also a, a strong business case for it, right? If your people are burning out, they're going to leave like I did. And it's expensive and, and time consuming to replace them. Uh, institutional knowledge goes with them. And we can't uh, move any more slowly than we're already moving on uh, on climate action because the timelines are too urgent. Mm. So we need everybody to stay in the game and keep their knowledge there. Um, and there's also a, you know, there's like I was pointing out, there's a, there's a planetary uh, reason for doing this as well, um, which is that we need everybody to be at our best. You know, I think it's, it's maybe helpful to, to take one step back and, and name the characteristics of burnout because yeah. some of them might be a bit surprising to your, to your listeners. The first one is very well known. It's exhaustion. When we uh, work really hard, we get tired. That's a natural byproduct of work. Uh, and uh, it's when we don't allow the stress to, to move through us and to dissipate. And we stay in that state of, of chronic exhaustion that it really becomes a problem. So that's the first marker of, of burnout is exhaustion. The second one, however, is more surprising. It's cynicism. Cynicism is a, a distance from the work. You know, maybe things start to feel far away. Um, you start to feel um, uh, pessimism. Uh, you don't really see possibilities anymore. And it can be really hard to dream up new things for yourself, for the world. And the third one is inefficacy or uh, a lack of effectiveness. You know, when you're burned out because you're not bringing your best to your work, you're not able to do your finest, uh, your finest work. And so if you think about the tasks that are in front of us, right, we're, we're trying to re-engineer business, we're trying to re-engineer societies, and to shift from a very extractive way of doing business that has gotten us into this mess into the first place, and shift to a regenerative way of doing business and a regenerative way of, um, of working uh, together in societies. And if you think about the enormity of that task, and then you try to imagine doing it from a bedrock of exhaustion, cynicism, and ineffectiveness, you can see why avoiding burnout is so essential, because we can't dream up new solutions the way that we need to when we are burned out. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's for all of those reasons why I you know, like to remind people that burnout is it's not an individual responsibility alone. Yes, there are things that each of us can do that we can take responsibility for, for managing our own uh, wellness and our own energy and our own resilience, creating boundaries, um, uh, incorporating healthy practices uh, to keep ourselves healthy. And it's a systems challenge. And what I found is that the most important starting point for a situation like that is simply to notice and to describe what's happening in the system that we're part of. It's when we keep quiet and we don't talk about what we're seeing that, uh, that the, the weight of it starts to, uh, to get very, very heavy and people feel like they're suffering alone because we can't solve what we aren't willing to talk about. I think that's a really good point, observing it, talking about it. You know, it is a difficult topic, but um, we need to address it thoughtfully. As larger systems as possible organizationally addressing it and really acknowledge its impact. I think it's it's massively important. So it's January. 
It's cold, uh, it's dark. We want to kind of create some optimism. We've spoken a lot about some of the, the real negative ways that this shows up, exhaustion, cynicism. It would be fantastic to really talk about where your work has moved the dial. And when you've worked with leadership and you've worked with individuals and you've addressed some of the systematic factors that contribute to organizational burnout, where can organizations get to? Like, what is the art of the possible in this conversation? Because I do think it's really important to leave people with a message that we can work through it and we can find a way to deal with this existential crisis in a way with optimism and energy. So could you talk through some of the work, some of the things you're really proud of in, in how you've turned individuals and organizations around? I live in California for a reason, Liam, which is that it's not always uh, dark and, and sunny here. Um, so maybe I'll try to bring some of my California uh, sunshine uh, out to those who are listening to this in a in a cold place. You know, one thing that innovation of all um, varieties has taught us is that the way that things are right now doesn't need to be the way that things will be, right? Humans are remarkable at changing when they choose to do so. And one of the things that's giving me strength right now, as it feels some days like the world is falling apart around us, is a reminder that in order to rebuild in a healthy way, we need to fall apart, right? We need to disassemble in order to reassemble. So some of what we're all feeling may be a natural byproduct of that, of the systems that have um, taken hold, no longer working, right? No longer serving us and starting to come apart so that we can rebuild from within them. You know, I think there are a few ways that we can really tap into energy and resilience to, to keep going on this. And I have a, a huge amount of fun and, um, excitement and joy when these things come out in you know in the people and the organizations that we that we work with one we already talked about which is practices you know um working together uh as as teams and starting to name some of the of the challenges and some of the symptoms of those challenges can be really helpful and some of the teams that we've worked with they pick funny words that they'll use like um, raccoon or broccoli, you know, something like that. Um, when they see a behavior that they've chosen that they want to, um, to, uh, to, to, to remove from their, from their relationships, whenever that behavior shows up, somebody will raise their hand and say broccoli. And it's just a reminder um, in, a, in a way that makes everybody laugh um, that, that this behavior has shown up and it gives them a chance to start to shift away from it and to start to embrace ones that work better for them. Um, so that can be a team practice, you know, things like that. Um, individual practices can be as simple as, you know, just remembering how powerful it is to breathe. You know, breath is a, a, a magical tool that is always available to us. Any difficult news that we get, any challenging meeting that we get, 
any um, big task that we're asked to do, uh, that we're asked to step into, like going and standing on stage or giving a big presentation or coming onto a podcast, you can take a few breaths and that reconnects you to your center and it reconnects you, it, uh, it dials down your nervous system and so much more is possible when you remember to do that. So that's available to us. Um, and then the last one that I'll maybe mention that has been, I think the most moving one for me when I work with, with clients is the ability to really deeply connect into the why of the work. What I often find when I work with sustainability leaders, especially when they're exhausted or when they're feeling cynical, is that they have allowed a huge gulf to appear between the reason why they came into this work in the first place and their day-to-day -day experience of the work. And what that might sound like is someone might say, I started doing this work because I grew up in a family that uh, valued going out into nature and we would go canoeing and we would go camping and I wanted to protect the natural environment and I got this amazing job and now I spend all day in uh, meeting rooms and in spreadsheets and they're wondering why they don't feel the love for the work anymore and that's not surprising and so one of the things that we do is to is to really go back to their roots and find ways to bring that very present into their day-to-day. -day. And I'll give you one example of a leader I worked with who runs a, um, a climate uh, mitigation project, carbon sequestration project. When we started exploring his motivation for this work and what makes this worth it for him, he flashed back immediately to a time when he had been in Alaska with family. And he could remember so clearly the feeling of standing in a river fishing. And he could feel the power of the river around him. It was just, it was rushing past him. And he was standing tall in this river and feeling the earth moving around him, feeling the water moving around him. And it was such a place of comfort and meaning for him that he remembered that that feeling is always available to him. So now before he gets up on stage to talk about the work that he's doing, or before he sits down with an important partner to talk about the status of, um, of the initiative, he closes his eyes and he brings the river back. He remembers that feeling of standing in that river with wild nature all around him. And he allows nature to fill him up in order for him to be able to protect nature. It's a beautiful thing when you think mm. about it, right? Allow nature to help us help it by remembering how wise it is, how beautiful it is, how powerful it is, and how resilient it is that when we get out of the way and we stop these practices that are harming na nature so much, it will bounce back. And we are the same because we are nature. When we stop the practices that are harming ourselves so much, we will bounce back. Thank you. I, I find that connecting to the purpose, being close to the impact, being close to nature in our, my own experience um, as energizers for the organization, the more we talk about the impact on the ground, the more 
people going to visit the impact on communities, reforestation, clean cooking, the energy level increase is, is palpable. So I can, can totally um, support that from my own experience. And then this sort of the Simon Sinek sort of connecting to why I think is a bedrock as well of any company strategy, vision, mission as well. And I think that's something that our, our CEO is really focused in on, which is to create improvement for all life on earth. So I, I think it's really, um, really uh, important two points connecting to the impact and connecting to the why that's uh that we certainly try to to bring to life we would love uh if you could tell us about someone who you follow who you admire who you know who has really taken their ambition through to tangible impact and and why they inspire you there are so many people i could choose here. Um, all of my clients inspire me so much. Just being able to to sit with them as they do this work really fills me with with joy and, and energy. I will uh, pick someone um, maybe a bit at a distance. Uh, I've never met her before, um, but I feel like I know her because of the, the, the way that her words move me. And her name is Joanna Macy. Uh, she is I believe in her 90s now, she is an ecologist and um, a, a Buddhist a practitioner and an author. She, um, and Joanna Macy writes really beautifully and speaks very beautifully about this period of time that we're in right now called the Great Turning. And the Great Turning is this shift from an extractive way of organizing societies and businesses to a regenerative way of organizing societies and businesses. And the way she describes it is it's still unclear whether we will succeed. And that can be paralyzing and that can also be deeply motivating. But the way that she talks about this work, um, it, it is filled with poetry. And one of my favorite ideas of it uh, that she shares is this idea that uh, our love for the world and our pain for the world are flip sides of the same coin. So every time we feel pain because we witness the destruction that's happening to the world, because we see the injustice that's happening to so many people, we can remember that we feel that pain because of our love because of our love for the world, because of our love for fellow humans, because of our love for the natural habitats. And that feeling pain is not necessarily a bad thing. It's a reminder of, of how much we love. So whenever we're feeling, whenever I'm feeling um, worn down by this work, I usually turn to Joanna Macy's writing uh, books like Active Hope and, and others and uh, a few videos that I found online where she's speaking on stage. And I listened to her uh, talk about how we can do this. And I listened to her recite Rilke poetry on stage and it fills me up. So uh, your listeners can't do wrong by, um, by checking out Joanna Macy and letting her fill them up with energy and, and passion for this work. Amazing. Thank you. Real inspiration, even in the struggle. So thank you so much. Great chat. I really enjoyed it. I think um, there's some lovely 
takeaways there in terms of tools, the personal audit, the metaphors that I'm sure people will think about more and be inspired by. So I just want to say thank you so much from Climate Impact Partners for joining us today. Hopefully I look forward to hanging out soon. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much, Liam. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Ambition to Impact. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did and are left feeling inspired. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on your favourite platform so you never miss an episode. And if you found today's conversation valuable, please consider leaving us a review. Your feedback means a lot to us and helps others discover the show. Don't forget to follow us on LinkedIn at Climate Impact Partners, where you'll have access to behind the scenes footage, updates and much more. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes where we'll continue our journey from ambition to impact.